Hello and welcome to the 33rd episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His upcoming book, Uncaring How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients will be published in May. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant fact concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened this week and what does it mean? Jeremy, it's important for listeners to understand the three-part, sort of the triple-header aspect to the coronavirus data. When social distancing ebbs, there's the initial change in the number of cases, followed a couple of weeks later by a rise in the number of patients who are hospitalized, and that's followed a couple of weeks later by an increase in the number of deaths. Similarly, when things begin to improve, the process happens in reverse. Transmission declines weeks before hospitalization, and hospitalization decline weeks before deaths. And that's where we are right now. We're a month after the holidays. We're finally seeing the number of cases sharply decline, the number of hospitalized patients being somewhat lower, and daily deaths beginning to diminish. However, remember that these percentage declines are relative to the peaks in the first part of January, not to the much lower numbers that we saw in September and October. Moreover, it's not clear if this encouraging trend will continue in the future or whether it might worsen again. Optimism stems from several factors. The first is that people are increasingly social distancing. And the second is that the number of vaccinated people is rising by a million a day and is now over 30 million or 10% of the population. On the pessimistic side, yesterday was the Super Bowl and people gathered indoors and in some cases with moderately large gatherings, most of whom were not wearing facial masks. And the more transmissible mutant strain that we discussed in our last episode is becoming more prevalent in the United States, and our nation remains distant from achieving herd immunity. The president is working hard to tip the scale in a positive direction. The White House reported that a million doses of COVID-19 vaccine will be made available to 6,500 pharmacies including Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid. And that's going to begin at the end of this week. But of course, a million doses is not a lot of vaccine, and eligibility will continue to be based on state guidelines. In addition, one of the first actions the new president took following inauguration 
was to order all travelers on airplanes, ships, trains, subways, buses, and ride-sharing vehicles, as well as on all federal property, to wear face masks. Hopefully, all of this will have a positive impact on slowing transmission and continue the downward trend in hospitalizations and deaths as vaccination percentages increase. In another interesting communication, Moderna announced it would be asking for permission to add more doses into each vial of vaccine it produces. In our last Coronavirus The Truth episode, we talked about how a business student would analyze a distribution problem like vaccine and look for what is called the choke point in the process, the place where the distribution slows the most. As hard as it might be to predict, what Moderna found was that the rate-limiting step wasn't the manufacturing of the vaccine itself, but instead the process of filling, capping, and labeling millions of tiny vials. The company estimates it could increase supply by 50% by adding more vaccine to each vial. Kudos to the company for this realization and for coming up with a potential solution. Finally, the next economic relief bill aimed at addressing the financial problems COVID-19 has created is slowly working its way through Congress. It's looking as though the vote will happen through a process called reconciliation, which is specific to economic issues and only requires a majority vote in the Senate, not the 60-vote majority needed to avoid potential filibuster from most other legislation. Jeremy, to me, it's very distressing that a year into the coronavirus pandemic, politics still rule in Washington, D.C., and in a number of states across the country. Robbie, in our last show, you mentioned the Russian vaccine. What's the current status of that one? Jeremy, good news on this front. A highly respected journal, Lancet, published data on the what would be the equivalent of phase three testing. 20,000 people were divided into two groups. 15,000 of them received the actual Sputnik V vaccine and 5,000 were given a placebo. After 21 days, the incidence of COVID-19 was measured in each group. The effect of this level was calculated to be 92%, essentially equivalent to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And the incidence of complications was no different in the two groups between those who received the actual vaccine and those who received the placebo. And they were minor in almost all participants who reported a problem. This Russian vaccine is important for Americans, even if none of us will ever receive it. Remember from the last show that the danger to our nation can come from people anywhere on the planet who have the virus. Because as the virus replicates, it can mutate. And when that happens, it's only a matter of time until the new variant comes to the United States and sets in motion another wave of infections. The more individuals around the globe who can be vaccinated, the higher the probability of controlling the disease in the future, 
regardless of where the vaccine is produced or administered. A listener said she had the coronavirus a month ago and is still not back to feeling like herself. She wants to know whether this problem is common. Is it? Jeremy, increasingly, doctors are seeing patients like this listener with symptoms persisting after they've recovered from the acute infection itself. These individuals have been given the label of long haulers. The number of people in this category appears to be in the millions worldwide, and the victims include individuals who had very mild disease and few symptoms. Most commonly, long haulers report brain fog, persistent exhaustion, and lung, heart, or kidney damage. The problem and the frequency may actually be worse than we think. A study published last month in The Lancet found that 75% of patients in China who had severe illness but recovered continued to experience at least one symptom six months later. That's three quarters of those very ill individuals. Furthermore, a report from the Mayo Clinic notes that although most people recover fully after being infected, those who become long haulers suffer intensely with persistent headaches, continued loss of smell and taste, as well as difficulty sleeping. The Mayo Clinic paper talked about the long-term organ damage that has been documented for the heart, lung, and brain in some of these patients. When I think about COVID-19, I go back and forth between being amazed at how much we've learned about this virus down to its exact genetic structure, and at the same time, how little we understand about our body's response to it. We can't even be sure for these patients with persistent symptoms whether the origin of the problem is reactivation of the actual virus, a response to residual viral particles in our body following infection, a new immunologic response to something that's still in our bodies, or persistence of the immune response that was initiated when we were first exposed. Our ignorance is not for lack of trying. Thousands of researchers are hard at work. It's the uniqueness of this pathogen. Studies of people with persistent symptoms are progressing in a variety of institutions today, including the National Institute of Health, or NIH. Robbie, when it comes to the coronavirus, it often feels like we're watching a tennis match with the issues rapidly moving first in one direction and then the opposite. As a result, for every piece of information about how bad COVID is, there's something about how problematic social distancing is. Any new data on the mental health issues from social distancing that we have discussed in prior episodes? Jeremy, the newest data is not encouraging. Researchers looked at 190 million emergency department visits and found major increases in almost all areas of mental health difficulties. Visit rates were up for suicide attempts, drug overdoses, intimate partner violence, and child abuse in 2020 compared to data from the previous year. And remember that during the pandemic, people have been concerned about going to EDs and they're becoming infected if they were to do so. So the threshold to seek care has been much higher in 2020 than in 2019. Social isolation and closure of schools 
have had a major psychological impact on people and kids. Was this worth it? It's unclear. I predict that researchers will examine this question for decades to come, and hopefully the information they learn will help us when the next pandemic comes ashore. Robbie, I heard that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine had been submitted for FDA approval, but there was a lot of controversy. What's going on with that? Jeremy, you're correct. The Johnson & Johnson's vaccine has been submitted for emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. If approved, the company could begin shipping early March. Just for background, this vaccine is somewhat different than the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Instead of injecting the messenger RNA directly into patients, technicians at J&J place it inside a harmless chimpanzee adenovirus, and that, the combination, is what's injected into people. The advantage of this approach is that the vaccine can be stored in a regular refrigerator, not one of these deep freezers, and the J&J vaccine requires only one shot. The controversy around this vaccine began with the lower effectiveness rate that researchers reported compared to the other two vaccine, raising the question of whether people would be willing to take it. But as we'll see, interpreting the data is very complex. Overall, the vaccine was 66% effective in preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 infections, 85% effective at avoiding severe disease, and 100% effective at preventing hospitalizations and death in the U.S. trials. That's pretty good results, and better than the original FDA threshold for emergency authorization. At the same time, how you interpret the numbers remains controversial. On one hand, the ability of the vaccine to prevent transmission sounds as though it could be 30% less than the other two, comparing the 66% number against the 95% numbers. On the other hand, this vaccine is equally as good as the other two, based upon the 100% efficacy of avoiding hospitalization and death. As such, you can view this vaccine as inferior equivalent, all dependent upon the statistic that you choose. But the controversy is even greater. Remember, this vaccine was tested more recently than the other two, and that means it had to battle the more transmissible new mutants. So maybe 85% or even the 66% is equivalent to the old 95%. And furthermore, this vaccine is designed as a one-shot process. And maybe with two injections, the efficacy would rise to match the others. We just don't know because the tests and comparisons have not yet been done. And scientists often hypothesize, but then they insist on rigorous testing before altering clinical recommendations. Jeremy, when I read a research study, in addition to wanting to understand what the researchers were looked at, I often try to examine between the lines for information I can apply to a different problem than the original study intended. And there's a set of data that I found quite educational. 
When J&J tested the vaccine, both in South Africa, where one of the mutants was dominant, and in the U.S., where it was present but re relatively rare, what they found is that overall transmission was 66%, but that included a 72% rate of protection in the U.S., as against a 57% rate of protection in South Africa. The 15% difference gives us a glimpse into the magnitude and significance of the higher transmissibility of the new mutant variant. This Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be particularly helpful in the poor countries of the world, where the types of freezers needed for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines don't exist, and getting people back for a second dose will be even more problematic than in the U.S. And as we've said, a vaccine-resistant mutant in any country of the world has a high probability of reaching our shores, rapidly replacing the dominant variant of the time, and potentially making other previous vaccines ineffective. Our good news segment that we do is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. Obviously, a third vaccine is great news. But what else do you got for us this week, Robbie? You may remember, Jeremy, that we said that little research had been done about pregnancy and COVID-19 vaccination. Although we still can't be sure about the vaccine itself, we now better understand the body's natural antibody response when pregnant women come down with COVID-19. And the data is good. In JAMA Pediatrics, researchers demonstrated that pregnant moms pass natural immunity to their babies in the womb. This is similar to other viruses, but hadn't previously been studied. And proof of this is very encouraging. Overall, 83 pregnant women who delivered in one hospital in Philadelphia were fined to have circulating antibodies against COVID-19. And 72 of their children at the time of delivery had antibodies as well. Even those whose mothers hadn't been symptomatic in the past, but have been found to have COVID only by blood testing for serum antibodies. And the study showed that the quantity of antibody passed onto the child is even higher when the infection occurs early in pregnancy. Although it remains speculative at this point, these results indicate possible early vaccination being very protective for the unborn child, and that the earlier in the, in the pregnancy that the vaccine were administered, the better it would be for the baby. But before any pregnant listeners race out to get in line for the vaccine, remember, nothing is yet conclusively proven and additional scientific studies need to be done. Robbie, now that there are three approved vaccinations in the U.S., I'd like to go back to a question from a month ago. What happens when you get the first vaccine shot from one manufacturer and the second from a different? Jeremy, we still don't know for certain since the studies in this combination have just begun. However, rather than seeing, receiving one type of vaccine for your first shot and the other for your second, people are now actually speculating that there might be 
tremendous benefits from doing just that. As an example, for people who get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it is highly effective against severe disease, but seemingly less so against mild cases. Maybe a shot with Pfizer or Moderna would achieve equivalent results to the 95% efficacy of these other vaccines. And researchers are speculating that there could be even greater efficiency if the second shot is different from the first, regardless of whether the order is Pfizer-Moderna or Moderna-Pfizer. In fact, there's a name for this type of approach, heterologous prime boost vaccination. There's even some optimism that taking this heterogeneous approach would provide greater protection against the new mutants that exist by attacking an even higher number of spike proteins and dropping the restrictions around which manufacturer's product was used for the second shot would reduce the risk that our nation would run out of vaccine when people come back and need it. Researchers at the University of Oxford are now enrolling volunteers in a study to compare a one-two sequence of the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, with half getting one first and the other half the other. The control group would receive two doses of one vaccine. Furthermore, AstraZeneca announced that it now would test a sequence of its vaccines with the Sputnik V vaccine in countries that are using the Russian vaccine as their primary source. Robbie, a listener wanted to understand why a year after the pandemic began, we have multiple vaccines, but essentially no effective treatments outside of a steroid to reduce inflammation in select patients. Jeremy, this is a great question, since it highlights three different aspects of the COVID-19 problem. First, many treatments involve either creating very complex antiviral proteins, or finding new medications. Doing so is difficult, time-consuming, unpredictable. In contrast, the messenger RNA vaccine is relatively simple, at least in concept to manufacture, although technically very exacting, since you use the body's immune system to do this hard work. Second, rather than a relatively straightforward process to test a messenger RNA vaccine, if you want to find and use and repurpose an available drug, you'd have to invest the same amount of time and resources in the comparative studies for each of these medications as you would for the vaccine itself. And remember, there's hundreds of potential drugs that could be used, and testing all of them simply would not be possible, even if you're willing to spend the dollars. There's just not enough patients available to compare a theoretical candidate against the placebo. As such, this route of finding a medication to treat people is like looking for a needle in the haystack. And so far, the results have been very disappointing, with the exception, as you pointed out, of the steroid dexamethasone used for a select group of patients. Third, don't forget that this is a very lucrative business. 
and drug companies have not been willing to cooperate with each other, share data, or even release comprehensive information as part of the emergency authorization process. As an example, remdesivir, one of the few drugs approved by the FDA, a drug that has not been proven to save lives, has generated $2.8 billion in revenue for the company that produces it and earned a 90% profit margin for a medication that previously had almost no clinical uses. Similarly, antibodies from the serum of patients who had recovered from COVID-19 had generated hope for an effective treatment, but the results have been disappointing. And the FDA that had approved that for clinical use is now scaling back its authorization. Finally, last week, a laboratory from South Korea called Celtrion had created a monoclonal antibody drug, but it too was found to be ineffective. Time and again, the hype that comes from companies promoting medication to treat people infected with the coronavirus has proven dramatically far greater than the reality. I hope that when it comes to preventing and responding to pandemics, we will have a different model in the future, one with strong regulatory oversight and mandatory transparency. Unfortunately, as the hydroxychloroquine debacle showed, neither currently exists in the United States. Jeremy, people in Iowa tend to be leery about governmental agencies and their ability to solve problems. And yet, often when it comes to finding effective medications to treat patients with COVID-19 or provide the protective gear needed for hospital workers, businesses haven't been particularly successful either. What would you predict would be the optimal approach going forward that people in the middle of the country would support? Robbie, I think the best would be for the government to help provide resources and incentives to private companies that have shown that they can and will innovate and provide the public and healthcare providers the needed supplies. Uh, the private sector has always been more innovative and effective than the government, and the government just essentially needs to encourage and enable it. And that's something I think everybody can get behind. Jeremy, as a patient, if you had one piece of advice for the new president relative to the coronavirus pandemic, what would it be? Well, Robbie, I mean, as we both know, we get accused of both siderism on this show quite a bit, which I mean, I think is a good thing. It shows that we're clearly not taking one side or the other. Um, and it's because we look at the facts and point out that both political parties have had major failures in handling of the pandemic. Uh, you know, people are so politically divided right now. And they're only getting their news from either, you know, the left-leaning CNN, New York Times, MSNBC, or the right-leading, you know, Fox News, New York Post. And they're, they're literally living in echo chambers. They cannot see that both sides have had massive failures of leadership and bad leaders that have handled the pandemic poorly. I am so sick of being accused of both siderism for simply pointing out that there have been failures of leadership on both sides. And I'm trying to look at it through an objective lens. My advice for the president would be to do his best 
to end the politicization of the pandemic. Talk to the news stations. Be transparent. Quit blaming the previous administration entirely for how bad things have gotten. The president needs to convince the nation that we are all in this together and we cannot effectively overcome the pandemic if we cannot stop fighting with ourselves and blaming each other for or blaming the other side for everything. We are all in this together. Robbie, several listeners of our last show were interested on more information on the success of the vaccination program in Israel. What can you tell them? Jeremy, first, I want to point out that Israel has continued to make progress towards its goal of herd immunity in the near future. It's vaccinated nearly 40% of the population, including 82% of people aged 60 and up. And yet with the new mutation, the country has seen continued high levels of transmission, although hospitalizations have declined by 30%. As such, we can learn much by seeing whether the prevalence of COVID-19 continues to diminish in the future or remains at unacceptable levels. Remember, after the first shot, it takes a couple of weeks for immunity to be produced. And even when transmission goes down, as we said at the top of the show, hospitalization rates and deaths can continue for multiple weeks. For that reason, this vaccine could be very effective, but its impact not yet demonstrated. At the same time, public health officials from Israel point out that only 2% of people who've had both shots have needed hospitalization. That sounds very encouraging. But remember, people who've had two shots began the process over a month ago, and that would be a mere fraction of the total number who have had the first shot today. Israel's current plan to vaccinate everyone over the age of 16 by the end of March will mean that we have a lot of data in April to predict what will happen in the U.S. this fall and next winter. We will be continuing to follow the success of the program, and hopefully it will translate into herd immunity, reduced transmission, lower hospitalization, diminished deaths, and slow disappearance of the virus from that nation. Finally, there's an additional piece of data that could help inform us in the United States. The ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel have resisted the calls of public health officials to socially distance due to a combination of religious beliefs and community customs. As a result, Although they make up only 12% of the population, they account for nearly one-third of the nation's infections. Getting them to be vaccinated will be difficult. And our nation can learn from Israel's experience over the next several months how to approach segments of the population who are resistant. And we can see the consequences of a significant portion of people continuing to be at risk if the government is not successful. Jeremy, as a nation, the United States is slow and resistive. Jeremy, as a nation, the United States is slow and resistive to learning from other countries when it comes to healthcare. Whether that is arrogance or fear is unclear. 
But time and again, we pay a major price for our resistance. Jeremy, as a nation, the United States is slow and resistive to learning from other countries when it comes to healthcare. Whether this is arrogance or fear is unclear, but time and again, we pay a major price for our resistance. Now I believe is a great opportunity for us to look around the globe and adopt the best solutions that exist. If we do so, we have the opportunity to control this virus and diminish deaths. If we ignore the success of other countries, all Americans will suffer. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a request on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.